Hey everyone, Mark B here. I uh, just wanted to step in real quick. For those of you who might have missed last week's podcast, just to remind everyone, this is the second part of our Mass Effect Science discussion uh, with my friend Zeke. If you missed the first week's discussion, check back to the prior week's episode. Give that one a listen before you start in here. Otherwise, we're just going to jump right into it. Let's get started. So, from the way that you're describing everything here, it, it mostly sounds like the the Mass Effect universe is pretty heavily researched insofar as its science goes. So, here's my question. Is there anything that makes you kind of cringy when you see them try to explain it from a scientific perspective? Uh, yes. Yes, yes, there is. Oh, I, I recognize that sigh. So... Uh, there were a couple other things, good things, that I would like to just quickly touch on before we move on. Okay. Um, so, fast and light communications are explained. You have a bunch of little buoys that set up constant Mass Effect tunnels between uh, systems. And these these buoys are therefore able to make faster than light communication possible, even though normally it shouldn't be possible. But it also means you have like a fixed bandwidth, much like the modern internet. Um, and a number of other limitations that are very realistic. Um, a lot of the new engineering and materials science is heavily derived from using mass effect fields because, for example, there's chemistry sometimes that can only happen, for us anyway, in space. You have to have microgravity because uh, having a too strong gravity field actually messes up the chemistry. With mass effect fields involved, you can do that kind of chemistry on a planet's surface. You don't have to build a super expensive facility in orbit, you can do it on the ground. Huh. Uh, you can also, like, uh, when you forge steel, if you forge it under a really, really, really heavy mass effect field, you're putting it under extreme gravity stress, and so it comes out of that field stronger than it had been before. You also have the quote-unquote shields, they're not properly speaking shields because they cannot block energy. The only thing that they can block is movement, which is why they are properly speaking within the fiction called kinetic barriers. Uh, but those are basically, you've got a layer of mass effect field things that have a capacitor in them, and they can make a very brief, very, very strong mass effect field so that a, bu a bullet being shot at you falls down instead of hitting you, and you're safe but they have a limit of how much charge they have, and then the capacitor has to be recharged before they can be used again, which is why you have a shield meter and not just constant shields. So, like I said, a lot of this stuff is just really, really well explained. There is a bit, which I will touch on again in the bad science, but I do want to mention it here because it is also good science. It's one of the very rare mixed cases. On board starships, you have artificial gravity. Artificial gravity currently is only possible by having things rotate, but in Mass Effect, you just have Mass Effect fields in the floor, and they keep you stuck to the floor, because you have weight in space. And then weapons is the final example, because uh, we already have railgun technology in the real world, like that is a thing that can be done, it's just not super effective right now. By using Mass Effect fields, however, you can make railguns that are very, very effective, even very small railguns, which is why you have the regular weapons you use are all 
railguns that are just carving off a little chip of dense metal and shooting it at someone. All of these things, all of the usual technology that we expect from a science fiction universe has all been explained by this one change to physics, this one addition of the Mass Effect field and Element Zero that controls it. But you had asked about bad science. Yeah, I, I, I do so enjoy when you, when you explain to me things that don't work. So, I think we should probably start with the, the biggest bad of them all, biotics, which actually does also connect with the Mass Effect field. Uh, for those not familiar with the series, essentially, uh, biotics is space magic. You have some people, uh, some races are more able to use it than others. With humans and most other races, it's very rare. With the Asari, nearly every one of them has it, or all of them do. I don't, don't 100% remember which one. But essentially, all of them can do it. And uh, it allows you to mentally manipulate uh, Mass Effect fields in your general area. You do need to have uh, an amplifier implant installed in order to make them actually work, so that is something in their favor. Uh, but it's just a thing that you can just do. Like, you can manipulate the Mass Effect field, and depending on your particular training, you can make either positive fields, which uh, draw stuff into them, more or less, um, or can act as barriers. Um, you can make uh, negative Mass Effect fields, which push things away or throw things around, and you can make um, chaotic Mass Effect fields, which go, which rapidly oscillate between being positive and negative. Those are usually used for disrupting things in some way. Right, and in, in the games, there are usually several different other people who are capable of using biotics in some capacity or another, uh, Liara Tassoni being a prime example. Uh, from the Asari side of things, I believe Samara is also able to utilize them. Um, but from the human side of things, there are really only in the playable character set, not including if you choose to make your main character able to do this sort of thing, two characters who are capable of utilizing biotics to any significant extent. And that is Kate Nyenko from the first game, who is shown to be a goddamn mess because of all of the fucked up changes that they had to implement in order to make him able to utilize biotics effectively. And Jack from the second game, who is shown to be a fucked up mess because of all the changes that they had to make in order to be able to allow her to be as powerful. Yeah. Coupled with the fact that she's just kind of a broken person in general. Though by the third game, they seem to have that mostly sorted out. Yeah, it's... It's part of her story. She's she's a broken bird, and the resolving her storyline successfully is essentially mending the broken bird and watching her soar. Right, but I'm I'm also referring to the fact that they have like a whole like little academy that they're dealing with when Cerberus shows up, and Jack is kind of protecting all of the people there. But they have all of these other people who are just learning about biotics. It's sort of Mass Effect's answer to the Jedi Academy in a lot of respects. Yeah, I can see that. And technically speaking, I believe both Miranda Lawson and uh, Jacob are able to use Jacob Taylor. That is, are able to use biotics. I want to say. Yeah, uh, Miranda. Miranda, I think you're right. Is is a biotic. Jacob. Look, nobody gives a fuck about Jacob. <laughs> That's fair. Um, 
but uh, it's worth mentioning because this means that there's actually, I think, only one team member once you get to the third game. You only have one or two, depending on whether you saved um, Caden or Ashley. Actually, the space you... racist, right. <laughs> but you only have either one or two uh, humans in your group that are definitely not biotics and like four that are biotics when we're told like biotics are supposed to be super rare so what's going on here well part of it is that um biotic training is uh biotics don't have a whole lot of use in civilian life generally speaking because most biotic field or uh, most mass effect fields are going to be generated by machines rather than by people so when if you need highly variable mass effect fields like what is that for well typically speaking it's for combat and so in general um the military is very very a very very big employer of um biotics and because biotics typically need quite a bit of healthcare and they need their uh, implants monitored and such there's a certain symbiotic relationship between um being in the military and being a biotic so, because you are in the military, and most of the people who join you are either private military or actual soldiers, you're generally going to pick up a lot of biotics, even though they're supposed to be really rare. But the thing with biotics overall is, it's bullshit. <laughs> the, just, it's straight bullshit. The explanation that they give for how it happens is that if a pregnant woman is exposed to what's called dust form element zero, which I'm fairly sure it's exactly what it says on the tin. It's literally element zero that's just been ground into a powder. Um, but if you have a woman exposed to um, element zero while she is pregnant, then that um, element zero can be picked up by the nervous system of the fetus. For the majority of fetuses exposed in this way, they suffer horrible, horrible t uh, neurological tumors and tend to die very young. However, for a small percentage of those exposed in this way, instead, these um, element zero things form tiny nodules in the uh, biotics nervous system, allowing them to manipulate mass effect fields with their minds. I should point out here that according to the Mass Effect wiki, Element Zero essentially seems like it's some sort of a solid form of dark energy. Yeah, it's. they mentioned that it's related to dark matter, I think. Uh, dark matter and dark energy are not related. We, we have to be very clear about that here. I spent a lot of time talking about dark energy earlier. Dark matter is completely unrelated, and we know for definite sure that dark, that dark matter actually does exist. We do not know what it is, but we definitely know it exists for two reasons. The first reason, um, which is the reason why we started talking about it in the first place, um, somebody was doing uh, some a, a, just a galactic survey looking at the stars. It might have been in, in Andromeda, but I don't think so. Just they were cataloging stars in another galaxy uh, and looking at their um, angular momentum which is, as the name sort of implies, it's a number that describes how quickly it's spinning around a certain center. 
Now, angular momentum is very, very important in physics because, like energy, angular momentum is conserved. You cannot have angular momentum simply appear or disappear. It has to follow certain rules. It's actually super important that angular momentum works around only a single axis. That is, when you spin something, it spins around just one pole rather than spinning around, say, two or three poles at the same time. Uh, and you can describe this for literally any collection of objects that are spinning. Every collection of objects that is spinning has a net momentum, and you can identify what the pole that it's spinning around is. Even if it's only very weakly, even if there's lots of you know, momentum canceling each other out, there will always be some direction if it has a net angular momentum at all uh, that is pointing. This is super important because when you have a net angular momentum, that creates uh, centripetal force effects which cause things to slowly spread out in a disk perpendicular to the direction of spinning, which is the reason why galaxies are shaped like disks and not generally like spheres. Uh, because galaxies are rotating, they have an angular momentum, and that angular momentum encourages things to flatten out into a disk shape. It's the same reason why star systems almost always have a flat plane. Why our star system has a generally flat plane, the plane of the ecliptic, in which most of the planets are located, Pluto being an exception. Um, if you well, it's not technically a planet, planet anyway, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, it's it has been demoted to a dwarf planet. Um, That's racist. <laughs> um, but if you look at the classic eight planets, then they are uh, all very roughly. But it's, it's within a couple percent, so it's pretty close. Uh, they're roughly located within a single flat plane. The reason for that is because of angular momentum. Angular momentum causes the cloud of dust that starts off roughly like a, a spherical blob, uh, but that cloud has a certain direction that you can say that it's rotating around this particular pole. And on the net, that's what its angular momentum is. Because angular momentum is conserved, that won't suddenly shift to a different direction, and thus you'll have things on the net cancel out so that, in the end, it's all rotating around that pole in a disk shape. Uh, and that's, in fact, if we lived in a four-dimensional universe, that wouldn't be the case. You could actually have two different poles around which something was rotating, and you'd never have planets forming because you wouldn't have the mass confined into a nice disk shape. You'd be having the mass, sp the mass spread out in a, the four-dimensional equivalent of a sphere. On the other hand, life would be really hell for strippers. It could be, yeah. You could actually be, you could, you could do stripper pole dances around two different poles at the same time. Two different perpendicular poles, I should say. I don't even know what to think about that. That's the fourth dimension for you. It's really frickin' weird. But anyway, so uh, getting back to the biotics, the, the problem with it is that like it's explained as you're able to create these fields by like having a, a really high control over your central nervous system, like you control the direction of the nerve impulses and that's what does it. But that's just rank bullshit, because any current traveling through your system should be vanishingly small, and the currents only go one way for muscle control. From the brain 
to the muscle. The only things that go the other way are sensory controls, and you can't control your senses. You can't control whether, whether or not you are feeling something touching you. You just feel it or you don't. So there's a lot of bullshit in just the explanation of biotics. And then the fact that, like, you can somehow amplify these fields into being actually meaningful? Well, why couldn't you just, like, cybernetically set that up? We already know cybernetics is possible. They fucking rebuild you. So it's just... A, a lot of it is really dumb, and it... To be fair, it, they basically make it known that they can kind of only rebuild you once, and that it costs shitloads of money and time. This is Though true. It's, it's kind of confusing that we live in a universe within the realm of Mass Effect where biotics as a thing is not necessarily common, but it's it's certainly common enough that you encounter a lot of them during your time in the game world. But cybernetics, which we're, we're kind of expecting is going to be the beginning of the technological singularity and must exist to a certain extent to allow for the Geth to exist, is relatively very rare. Yeah. And I think they kind of explain that in a way because they kind of explain that AI as a construct is not desirable because of the Geth, but I mean... There's a little bit more to it than that. Um, there's actually a point where when you have a conversation with Tali about um, artificial intelligence, she basically explains, like, there's a very good reason why AIs and um, organics don't get along. We have nothing in common. I don't agree with some of the claims that she makes because there actually are some things that I think that would be in common. Simply, I mean, they need energy in order to operate. We need energy in order to operate our machines. So that is one thing we have in common right there. Um, and then secondly, if they actually are intelligent in a way that is analogous to how humans and other creatures in the galaxy are intelligent, and that's a valid thing to say in the Mass Effect universe, then they should have a need for creative expression and a need for intellectual stimulation. And creative expression and intellectual stimulation only occur through communication. Right, and, and they, kind of, they kind of prove that that's bullshit in the third Mass Effect, honestly. And then immediately go back on it later with the fucking catalyst? Yes. <sighs> to be fair, I, so I legitimately mad. feel like that's not the universe going back on it. I think it's just people trying to excuse their own bullshit. Because yes. if you look at the, the sequence of events that goes on during the Geth interactions in Mass Effect 3, it's clear that the Geth were killed outright, more or less, because they started asking basic questions. And yeah. Do I have a soul? Well, does this unit have a soul? Right, and it's not that they don't have anything in common, it's that Tali's race, I uh, can't think of the name of it, but... The Quarians. Thank you, the Quarians. Presupposed that they didn't have anything in common and killed them when they started showing any degree of intellect, when, realistically speaking, intellectual curiosity should be something that you have in common, considering that they were the ones that built the fucking Geth. But further to the point, if you look at the environment that you're traveling in during that sequence of events, that's pretty artistically fucking interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, you have, and also like, one of the things that's frequently not mentioned, and that they, they did actually do it, I will give the writers credit, they did a good job of expressing this uh, in that phase, that 
up to that point, we had only really heard the um, Quarian side of um, the Geth Rebellion, or as the Geth put it, the Morning War. Um, and we see examples probably cherry-picked. Let's not like we're hearing this stuff from the the Geth like group mind itself, so we should recognize that these are probably biased. But uh, we hear examples of uh, Quarians fighting to protect their Geth against other Quarians. So it's not even strictly that the the uh, Quarians were all of one mind about the Geth. They, some of them actually believed that they deserved a chance, and it's just that that faction lost. History is written, in some cases, not necessarily by the victors, but by the survivors. Fair enough. Um, but anyway, so that's pretty much biotics done with. It's There's a lot of bullshit involved, and it, like, a serious analysis of it pretty much directly leads you into this is only there so that they could have it as a character class, which is fine. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with gameplay story segregation. It's just, it kind of sticks out in a game that's otherwise pretty serious about its science stuff. Okay. Um, the second case, um, and this actually gets into a problem where they did do something very realistic that a lot of people won't understand because they haven't had organic chemistry, um, but, um, they then, so they, like, they, uh, one of the things that's mentioned, um, and I want to say this is it starts in the first game, uh, but it actually does come up as well in a conversation you can overhear in the second game. On Earth, all organic molecules are, um, made using, um, sugars and proteins that have a certain handedness is the proper is the general term the the proper term for it is chirality which literally means handedness in greek um it's where we get the term chiropractor use your hands um and uh on earth i don't um uh, i don't remember which one it is i want to say it's levo but anyway all isomers of organic molecules here on Earth are pointing one direction. Um, so they all um, are either they're all left-handed or they're all right-handed. I don't remember which one is which. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can absolutely have um, a organic chemistry that's based on the other-handedness. That's the mirror image of our um, chemistry. And that's fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but in um, the Mass Effect universe specifically, um, several of the races, uh, Batarians, Salarians, humans, um, are all of one handedness for their biochemical molecules. And a couple of the races, the Turians and the Quarians, are of the other handedness. I want to say the Asari and. Um, Krogan are also have the same handedness as humans. Uh, and they, there's actually a thing in the codex that talks about how um, this is a very important issue, 
and it makes it so that even interactions between specific species can sometimes be they can have some issues involved because for example if the turians conquer a planet owned by humans which they actually did in the background story of mass effect it's how humans find out that there are aliens out there we have one of our planets militarily conquered by the turians um but they um they can't eat any of our food because all of the food that is grown from earth um, chemistry is essentially poison to them if they tried to eat it it would kill them at, at, at the very least it would give them like, like it would do it would just pass through them and not get digested and so you'd, you'd be crapping out undigested food which is not a good thing well i mean it works for rabbits i suppose um, but even then, they are doing some digestion. You're literally getting nothing out of this food if it's the wrong chirality for your biochemistry. Uh, you just can't use it. Because all of your amino acids, uh, or not, I'm sorry, um, all of your enzymes, they are, they are shaped to pick up the kinds of molecules that you digest. So, like, think about it this way. Uh, you know what happens to people who are lactose intolerant, right? Yes, I am intimately familiar with what happens in that situation. Well, now imagine that you're eating food where literally everything in it, you are as intolerant of that as lactose intolerant people are of lactose. Oh, so it's like having the worst case of gallstones ever. Yes. Awesome. Every time you eat this other kind of food. I mean, that kind of happens to me sometimes when I eat Korean food, so I guess I understand. While that's fair, th this is more like you couldn't eat an apple, because the, an apple from this mirror world is made up of food you literally can't digest. You don't have the molecules to do so. So you would eat it, it would be painful, and then you would get nothing from it, and you would just die. Yes. It, it, well, if you're lucky, you'll just get nothing from it. If you're unlucky, it will kill you just by eating it. Oh, that's exciting. Yes. Because it, because it would literally be poison. It, or I should say, it's possible that it could be poison to you. It's possible that it could be rather toxic to you. Uh, it's also possible that you could have an allergic reaction uh, that would just be a runaway allergic reaction because you're just constantly exposed to this stuff you're, and your body can't get rid of it because it's still it's inside you now. Uh, so yeah, you it could be very, very bad. Uh, but this extends to all sorts of biochemical things. The reason why... Uh, bacteria, for example, can do, or viruses, can do things to your cells is because we operate on the same biochemistry. If you have different biochemistry, you can't get anything out of it. Like, at worst, you would have, again, this whole, like, things being produced that your body can't do anything with, and so you have allergic reaction. Uh, but if you tried to put a bacterium or a, a virus that depended on the wrong chirality of molecules, then it would probably die because your whole body would be poisoned to it. So it wouldn't necessarily be possible for viruses to jump from race to race in that capacity. Yes. Without, like, an extensive amount of evolution in a hurry. Yes. Except, when you're on Omega, there is a cross-species plague, and your Turian squadmate can pick it up. So that's not really a thing without it 
how would that even work then? Like, it would have to be rapidly evolving to a point where there wouldn't even be that ability for anybody to be immune from it because it could just evolve to match. Right. And at the same time, all of your human squad mates are immune to it. Yeah, I'm not, I don't really feel like the people who, who thought that out understand how viruses work. Right, exactly. It's, uh, it's it, Now, it's supposed to be, like, specially engineered by the collectors or whatever, but it, it just doesn't make sense that you have a plague that has literally zero effect on humans. It cannot affect humans at all, but it can affect Salarians and Turians and Quarians and all the rest. It's like, no, you can't just do that. You can't just declare these things. That's not how biochemistry works. I mean, it's not like... It's not like we don't have examples of that in the real world. There have been extensive books written on the concept of viral warfare, and I've read a few. There was a book called The Cobra Event, which was written around the idea of an engineered bioweapon, like essentially a heavily engineered virus that kind of mixed a bunch of different components together from AIDS, Ebola, and other such things that had rapid jumping from person to person that was based on a real event where there was almost an Ebola outbreak in the U.S. because monkeys were illegally transported into the U.S. and some of them had Ebola. But despite the fact that we are similar-ish to monkeys, the and the Ebola virus in that location eventually evolved to become airborne, which, holy fucking shit... Oh, yeah. This virus evolved the ability just in the short amount of time that it was in captivity to go airborne. It still couldn't evolve to deal with humans. Yeah. So by creating this virus, you're making two specific assumptions. First, that the virus is capable of rapid evolution to such a scale that it can jump between multiple different races that are all vastly different from one another. And we're talking within a matter of days it's able to do this and survive. Or it's just able to do it from the beginning, like it just can. Right, but then you're also saying that somehow they designed it in a way such that this one particular type of race is immune to that, and you're assuming that the virus will obey those rules. Yeah. Because viruses do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's... Now, uh, okay. if they had explained it as something like... Because uh, there, there's... um, Not to make Babylon 5 comparisons again, but um, one of the later plot developments in the Babylon 5 universe is that there's a um, plague released by former servants of the shadows trying to get revenge on humans. Uh, there's this plague weapon released on Earth... Uh, and so Earth has to be, like, put under a quarantine, and nobody can enter or leave, and it's it's super bad. Uh, and at first, they're not super sure how this thing works, but as they start doing epidemiological studies, they start finding that, like, just, like, suddenly and very rapidly, like, over the span of just a month or so, like, 100,000 people, that that's probably exaggeration, like, 20,000 people will all suddenly die of pancreatic failure. And then 30,000 people somewhere else will die of um, uh, acute, some kind of acute lung disorder or something. And with the way that that's explained is that this plague is actually a um, computerized nanovirus. So it actually is, 
being operated by a brain of some kind. And it's just ticking through the human genetic code, finding flaws and exploiting them. And as it does so, it implements things that some people will be sensitive to and will die of. And it's just, it keeps ticking, ticking, ticking until it can find that one combination that will kill everyone. Uh-huh. Uh, and so if they had explained it that way, if it had been an actual, like, something that is not only engineered, but is being controlled, that I could understand, because it's entirely possible that you could have some kind of you know, engineered in recognition of some particular code that's unique to humans, like say, let's let's say our version of the gene that makes it so that our lungs can pick up oxygen, cytochrome C. Um, I think that's cytochrome C. Uh, Cytochrome C is a thing that all life needs in order to do its proper um, respiration energy gathering stuff. Uh, And all the different forms of life on Earth have very, very subtly different versions of cytochrome C. This is one of the ways that they can look at um, evolution genetically. They can compare the genetic sequence for the cytochrome C gene that all life on Earth needs uh, and see how closely related these um, sequences are. And if they're slightly different from one another, they can say that those are more related than things that are very different. They're very different. Like, if you have, say, 95% of the genes in the sequence are the same, then they're probably more closely related to things that only have uh, 75% or whatever. So if there was some kind of unique biomarker that identified humans as opposed to anybody else, uh, then maybe I could see some kind of way of making, like, an actual smart virus that could identify humans and be like, okay, no, do nothing to this person, just leave them alone. Treat them as a, a, car- a carrier and nothing else. Uh, but for the rest of it, it no, it's just it doesn't make sense, and it's played off as an actual organic, genetically evolving thing, so it just doesn't make sense. Um, let's see here. Um, so that that the transspecies plague was another big one. Now we're getting to probably, in my opinion, the most egregious example of a scientific error in the thing. And I say this not because it's one that is particularly obvious, but rather because it's literally making an actually, a truly factually incorrect statement about things that, like, we can actually factually disprove this right now. So, if you have played through the second game, you'll know that, um, for example, um, when you are doing Morden Solis's um, loyalty mission, you're tracking down a uh, protege, apprentice sort of thing of his, uh, Malon, who has apparently been captured by um, rogue... um, Krogan, and they're forcing him to perform terrible genetic, terrible experiments on live subjects in order to try to find a cure for the genophage, which, again, for those not familiar with it, is basically a disease that was built um, by the Solarians in order to prevent the Krogan from breeding so out of control that they would just 
outbreed the rest of the universe and conquer everyone. And um, when you come across some bodies along the way, um, Morton Solis uh, notes that, uh, or rather, you note, I believe it is to him, that some of them are human. You're like, why are there humans here? This is a Krogan research, like this is a research facility working on Krogan. And he talks about how humans have a high degree of genetic variability, and that that makes them useful subjects for uh, getting, like, like, like it gives you a broad basis for doing analysis. This is factually wrong. Humans do not have a high degree of variability. Humans, in fact, have some of the lowest genetic variability of any mammal on Earth. Something happened in our ancient past. We're not 100% sure exactly what or exactly when, but something a very roughly 7,000 to 12,000 years ago happened. Actually, no, it would have to be... I meant 7,000 BC to 12,000 BC somewhere in that span of time, we had a major evolutionary bottleneck. Something happened that caused a lot of humans to die off. Uh, one of the frequently floated possibilities is um, there's a thing called the Mount Toba eruption, uh, which happened in roughly the right span of time and would have uh, basically created a short-term uh, volcanic winter. Uh, by putting up so much gas and dust into the atmosphere. Uh, and it's thought that uh, the human population may have dipped into uh, the thousands, even. Uh, that there were only a few thousand humans alive on Earth for a little while. Uh, and all of us, thus, are now descended from that really, really small population that survived. Uh, this is important because when you lose most of the population, you have um, people uh, not being very different from one another, which is the case. What this means is, um, for practical purposes, humans don't have a lot of genetic variability. I've frequently heard it said, although I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, so don't take this as gospel, uh, but I have heard it said that uh, there is less genetic variation between uh, the native people of Africa and the peoples of um, Alaska and Siberia, you know, the Inuit, than there is between two troops of chimpanzees in the same jungle. Okay. That's how closely related we are. So saying that humans are a, are a great source of genetic variability is just flat wrong. If other races in the galaxy are that inbred, there's a huge problem with their biology, and they should be having really, really serious genetic disorders. It's the reason why humans need to have such a strong um, uh, instinct against inbreeding. Uh, inbreeding in general has a instinct resisting against it, but humans are super, super sensitive to inbreeding problems. So, uh, and then, ah, okay, there's one last bad science thing. 
and this one actually ties back into the Mass Effect stuff, uh, which is somewhat unusual because most of it was really well handled. Uh, so I had mentioned earlier that um, among the things that the Mass Effect field handles is artificial gravity, which is, like I said, really quite clever. The fact that you know you can tie in one of the major uh, hurdles for making classic science fiction uh, into the same thing that gives you space travel. Hey, that's pretty good. But there's a problem. So when you're using a Mass Effect drive or the Mass Effect relays or whatever else in order to travel faster than the speed of light, you use the field to make um, the mass of objects inside it go down, right? Like, like that's how that works. Right. But in order to make artificial gravity in space so that people actually feel stuck to the floor, you have to use a mass effect field to make the mass go up. You need to have higher mass than usual, not lower. So how is it that you can have artificial gravity while you're flying around with the Mass Effect drive? You shouldn't be able to do both at the same time. Is there a way to do both at the same time? Well, I mean, it's clear that they're intending you to believe that they're doing both at the same time, but physically speaking, you shouldn't be able to do that, because the whole idea of using the Mass Effect drive to travel faster than light is that the the net mass, all of the mass inside this bubble, has been reduced. If you're having something else that's increasing it, then the speed of light for that smaller inside bubble should be lower, and so you should be having your feet ripped out from under you. So it just it, it, it doesn't physically make sense, particularly given that they've talked about how if the Mass Effect drive fails, then you should have this deadly Cherenkov radiation thing. Having a, a counter Mass Effect field that's, that's going opposite to the drive should be making it so that you're not able to move faster than light anymore. Like, that should lower the speed of light so that it's actually, you can't move as fast. So, yeah, it's, the, the fact that you have artificial gravity even while traveling faster than light is a pretty big hole that it seems like they just sort of glossed over and hoped no one would notice. I kind of have to wonder if there is a way by which you could create that effect without making it so that the the floor was essentially traveling slower than the rest of the ship. Yeah, I, I don't know. There may be some kind of explanation for it. Like, maybe a the, the Mass Effect field in use um, while you're traveling gives some kind of inertial effect that keeps you stuck to the floor. I, I don't know. But I've never seen anything that I could find, at least, that explicitly said why you should be able to still have gravity while traveling faster than light. I've never seen anything mentioned about it at all, actually, so I don't know if it was just an oversight, or if they knew about it and hoped no one would notice, or what. But it does seem to be a, a significant hole that's, as far as I know, never addressed. Now, the one thing that I, I feel... I don't feel like a lot of this could necessarily be explained, or if it could be explained, it would be quite difficult. But I kind of wonder if there wasn't a better way to do biotics so that it wasn't 
you know, complete bullshit. It's possible. Um, let's think here. Um, one possibility could be that uh, you could have some kind of... It could be some kind of genetic variation. So again, if we want to maintain this, it's relatively rare thing. Uh, it could be some kind of genetic variation that um, occurs from having been exposed to very intense mass effect fields in the womb uh, that allows uh, poorly understood currents in the brain or structures in the brain maybe that are generated by this altered genetic code uh, to directly influence the um, shape of space-time around you, essentially. So what we're talking about here is that you are basically born with uh, some level of ability to uh, distort space-time through um, the electromagnetic waves generated by your brain. Uh, and so then it would still require a great deal of training, it probably would still require um, amplifiers to make it stronger, but it would not require this weird, like, you need to control the nerve impulses going down your arm, and that's what's somehow making mass effect fields. It's instead that you're actually directly influencing the fabric of space, literally with your brain. Even that still feels pretty far-fetched. No. No. Manipulating the fabric of space with your brain, that's totally reasonable. <laughs> but it still feels to me at least a step up. There's also the possibility that it could just be a, um, a cybernetic thing, and it's just that most people aren't compatible with the implant that lets you do it. Um, essentially going along the direction that um, uh, Deus Ex Human Revolution did, where... Uh, if most people are uh, like they don't just don't have the proteins or whatever to interface with this properly, but a handful of people do, and maybe it's not well understood why, because uh, they do talk about how they're able to do, gene to do genetic engineering in Mass Effect. So it's also possible that you could kind of explain away the characters of Aiden and Jack utilizing that as well, um, saying that Aiden was part of some sort of tests to force people to have these sorts of proteins at a young age or from birth or what have you, and that it fucks you up, and that Jack was a, a test that was designed to attempt to increase the amount of proteins or something similar, which makes her super powerful and pissed off. Yeah. Uh, and then that could explain Miranda, because she was essentially designed from birth, uh, or rather designed from conception, and so she was very carefully genetically tailored and probably could have had, t even in vitro tissue resequencing, having her body literally rewritten biochemically uh, to be specifically what her father wanted it to be. Um, it doesn't really explain Jacob, but then again, nobody gives a shit about Jacob, so fuck him. Um, it also doesn't super explain like the fact that all... Asari are biotics, and that, like, like, biotics is sort of part of the just 
biosphere of their homeworld or something? Well, I mean, if it's if it's usage of certain kinds of proteins and they have access to protein technology, who's to say that they didn't just genetically manipulate themselves from a certain point to all just have those proteins? Forced evolution. Alternatively, it could also be that it's... Um... Oh, hey! Oh, that's... A... Okay, so one of the things uh, in biochemistry is uh, that's a very hot topic right now, actually, because it may be the eventual way that we are able to treat cancer in the generic rather than each individual specific kind of cancer. Normally, you don't have metals getting involved in organic chemistry. Normally, that's not a thing. One of the very few exceptions is hemoglobin, uh, because, uh, at least for animals, uh, if you get um, excessive concentrations of um, heavy metals, anyway, in the body, they will fuck up your nervous system and your nerves stop working properly. Um, I have been can... to I have been to a couple of Metallica concerts, so I can confirm that this is the case. <laughs> um, but it occurs to me that. Uh, we could even keep the tie to element zero involved here by saying that what if there are um, protein structures analogous to uh, hemoglobin, to chlorophyll, that sort of thing, that have a, an atom of iso in the center instead of an atom of iron, or mag uh, magnesium in the case of chlorophyll. And so then you're, it's not just that you are... Um, having genetic compatibility, it's that you actually have in all of the tissues of your body a certain amount of these proteins that just have ESO in them. And that's why you're able to manipulate this, because you're literally, you are partially made of element zero. Okay. And so then in, in that case, the amplifier is not so much picking up tiny currents in you, it's that it's actually giving you the electromagnetic field you need to make the ESO in your body generate the fields you want to generate. Okay. That could be an explanation. And it would also explain why the um, biosphere of... Uh, I don't even remember what it's called, but the Asari homeworld. Why their biosphere is so suffused with it and why the Asari themselves sort of are like... They need biotics in order to do their method of reproduction. That's how they're able to mate with everything, because they use biotics to essentially make an Asari equivalent of the DNA of the person that they're mating with. Yeah, so that's that's definitely a possibility. I hadn't considered that until just now. Uh, the idea of literally integrating Izo into a person's uh, biochemical structures, They're, that they actually have ESO-containing proteins. That's an interesting idea. I feel like the most important thing that comes from that particular conversation point is that Colossus is immune to cancer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you heard it here uh, first, ladies and gentlemen. If they decide to write that Colossus gets cancer in X-Men, they're fucking lying. There's one last thing I'd like to mention uh, that is 
I'd call it a, a mixed case. Uh, this is using, it's using soft sci-fi stuff in that it's related to concepts that we are talking about, but in a way that probably isn't how real physics works. I had mentioned earlier that faster than light communications is done through the use of these buoys that um, set up corridors of, you know, very small, very, um, very, very low mass corridors that you can send signals very quickly. Uh, but in the second and third games, there is a second method of faster than light communication. Uh, your ship, the Norman DSR-2, is equipped with a special quantum entanglement communicator, which allows the elusive man to have a exclusive two-way connection with your ship, um, so that it's not possible for anyone else to intercept it, and you can always communicate no matter where you are in the universe. Now, quantum entanglement is in fact an actually real thing. It's not very well understood, but uh, more or less in certain quantum mechanical experiments, when you have observed the... So like, let's say you have a, a particle that decays into two electrons, which there's a variety of things that can do this. Um, but you have a, it decays into these two electrons. The electrons have to have gotten all of their angular momentum, again, a thing that's conserved in our universe. Um, they've gotten all of their angular momentum from the thing that they decayed from. So if you add their two angular momenta together, you know that it was whatever the angular momentum of the thing that you started with was. But this causes some weirdness, because that means that if you observe the electron, if you, like, like let's say these two electrons split in exactly opposite directions, one goes to the left, the other goes to the right. If you observe the electron that goes to the left and find out what its spin is, spin being one way of representing its angular momentum stuff, um, if you observe its spin and say its spin is pointing uh, straight forward, because it it's a three-dimensional vector, so it can really point in any direction, but let's just say it's pointing straight forward, then you automatically know 100% that the other electron, its spin is pointing backward. You 100% for sure know that about that other electron. Even though you've never looked at it, even though it's on, it's so far away, that in order for you to pick up that information, it would have had to travel faster than the speed of light. This is weird. We don't fully understand why this works. Uh, we do know that it works. Uh, but we also know that it can't communicate information faster than light. Because in order for it to do so, you need to have things constantly emitting electrons, and you'd need to have some way of controlling what the spins of them are before they're observed, which you can't do, because by controlling it, you're observing it. So this whole quantum entanglement communicator, probably bullshit. But... Uh, despite being probably bullshit, um, they actually do use it in a somewhat clever way, and so I'm willing to forgive it, because um, the fundamental idea is that uh, normal faster-than-light communications in the Mass Effect universe 
are much like sending email um, in that they have to pass through a lot of hands. And you can encrypt things to try to make sure that people can't read your stuff, but there's no guarantee that a message sent by the normal channels in the Mass Effect universe will not be read by somebody, because we do actually have quantum computing and a variety of other things that can make encryption very difficult. With the quantum entanglement communicator, you don't have to worry about that. There is literally nothing between you and the person you're talking to. There's no one can possibly intercept that communication. That's a super duper ultra valuable effect. When you combine that with the fact that the Normandy is a stealth ship, and thus you don't want to be trying to send wireless signals to them even if you could somehow do so, the fact that you can get a direct line to them that can neither be interrupted nor, nor intercepted, um, and that can't be even detected by anyone else, that's a really, really useful thing for a, a ship of its kind. So it has interesting implications and is at least inspired by real science. So I'm willing to give it a pass, even though it's not as accurate as it could be. Fair enough. And that about wraps it up. I don't have any other things I can think of. Oh, there was one other thing I wanted to mention, actually. Uh, this is part of the good science again. Um, it's a, I mean, it's a bit late saying it now, but um, one of the things that most people familiar with astronomy will know about is that if you look at um, galaxies um, and such out in the observable universe, uh, they will be redshifted. You have the Doppler effect coming in, uh, which uh, almost everyone is actually familiar with the Doppler effect, even if they've never heard the name, because when you hear uh, the sirens of a uh, emergency vehicle traveling past you, when they're coming toward you, they seem to uh, rise in pitch, and then the moment they shoot past you, they suddenly drop in pitch. That is you literally hearing the Doppler effect with sound instead of with light. When the source of the sound is coming towards you, Every moment that the car is moving means that those sound waves are getting that the a new sound wave is being generated closer to the sound wave in front of it. Instead of being generated because if it was standing still, they'd be generated with a specific range, a specific distance between each wave. But because you're moving forward, the waves are getting compressed together. That causes the frequency to go up because you're having a smaller wavelength. And that then means that things will sound higher pitched. When you have it moving away from you, exactly the opposite effect happens. You get extra distance added between each wave, which means you have a longer wavelength, a lower frequency, and so things will be sound deeper than they sounded before. For light, exactly the same thing happens. If stuff is moving away from you, you get the wavelengths stretched out, and so the light appears to be lower frequency, but instead of being high pitch versus low pitch, you get red versus blue. I'm sorry, uh, blue versus red. Um, blue light is high energy, uh, high frequency, short wavelengths. Uh, red light is lower energy, longer wavelengths, lower frequency. Uh, and when you look at all of the galaxies out in the rest of the universe, it looks like all of them are flying away directly from us. 
Um, and that's because space is expanding. And you can think of the expansion of space being more like the rising of a loaf of bread than like things being stretched, per se. Because when you look at like a loaf of bread rising, if you have two raisins next to each other, or several raisins in a loaf of bread, as the bread expands, the whole thing grows, and each raisin, from its perspective, will see all of the other raisins moving away from it. Even though none of them is at the center of the bread, it will appear as though it is the center of the expansion. There is no center to our universe. Our universe is all uniform. Uh, you can think of it sort of as being every point in the universe is the center of the universe, and therefore there really isn't a center, as we would usually use the term. Um, and um, because of this stretching of space, because of this things flying away from each other, the light that we see gets redshifted. If you were to travel faster than light by any means, not just specifically the, those used in Mass Effect, then you're going to be literally running into the light that's ahead of you and running away from the light that's behind you. You will be unable to see things behind you faster than light because that light can't catch up to you for you to see it. You, you have a blind spot behind you. And similarly, for the light in front of you, since you're going to be running into it, you're going to be stacking up those the, the waves of the frequency, and so light in front of you is going to get blue-shifted. And they actually do talk about how you have to uh, de-shift the light that you see coming in in front of you when you're traveling faster than light in Mass Effect, otherwise you're not going to be able to see anything because the visible wavelengths are going to be gamma rays. Uh, and so that's just another example of, like, they really did their homework with a number of things. They actually covered some pretty important stuff. Uh, but they also sometimes didn't. So that's everything. I don't have anything more to talk about on the, mass, the, the science of Mass Effect here. Well, I feel that was pretty extensive, actually. So that's a good place as any to stop. I'm sure we'll have many more conversations about different franchises in the months and years to come. But I, I feel like that was pretty informative. Good. I hope that the explanations I gave were reasonably approachable, because, like I said, I, I really do feel like if you can get a handle on what these things mean and why they're valuable, you can actually get a much deeper appreciation for what it was that these authors were able to do with their game. Yeah, it's. I feel like the games in general do get a lot of heat in some cases for the way that they handle relationship constructs and things. Then you know how Shepard effectively is capable of more or less being the center of the universe in terms of narrative structure. But there's a lot going on in this world, and I really feel like the world building and the things around it are interesting. Oh yeah, you're maybe not necessarily going to be the sort of person who goes through all of the codex entries to understand things unless you're, well, you. But it's it's interesting to see how that all ties together from somebody who has that sort of understanding and perspective on it. 
And one thing I do want to bring up, and I feel that this is as good a, a closer as I can possibly provide to the podcast as any as it relates to Mass Effect is, in the upcoming Mass Effect Andromeda, the main character will feature the default unchangeable last name of Ryder. And the only thing I have to say about that is, I'm going to name my character Zack, and if you don't, you're a heathen. Fair enough. I was thinking Ghost. That's fair as well, except that it's R-Y-D-E-R. Fair enough. Knight, but, then? No, he also spells it with an I. Oh, damn. Well, I tried. The important thing is that you tried. Gold star. <laughs> but that's about going to do it for us for this particular discussion. Especially since we're looking at almost two and a half hours here. Join us next time when our topic will be making the Citadel great again. If you liked what you listened to today, check us out on SoundCloud over at soundcloud.com slash markbwriting and iTunes, just search for Neo Kobe Pizza. Thank you very much for listening. And remember, stay safe out there, junkers, and take care, biotic your hair. Woo, 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 you know it.